Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.14, The Origins of King Philip's War. Last time, we focused on the relationship between New England and the Crown on the eve of King Philip's War. Well, the events of last week are not going to necessarily be related to the war itself. They are going to combine with the coming war to help explain the response of the Crown to their most obstinate colony. With the death of Massasoit in 1661, his son Metacom took his position as the primary chieftain of the Wampanoag people. This was a role that his father had been in since we first started our story. Massasoit had, at times, likely manipulated the Plymouth settlers to do his bidding. However, regardless of that, the ultimate legacy is one of a 40-year peace. And while neither side was terribly anxious in seeing that lasting peace come to an end, it is impossible to ignore the fact that the entire dynamic in the region had changed. No longer is there a small group of English hanging out and trying to make a go of it. Instead, the population of New England had exploded. By the time that Massasoit died, he had witnessed New England grow from just around 100 settlers to a population of over 25,000. When looking at the forces at work that would fuel the coming war, this population growth is the first place to look. Just as we had seen in Virginia during their wars with the Powhatan Confederacy, along with population growth came increasing pressure on the local resources, with land being chiefly amongst those. Competition for resources was always something of a concern, and we have seen it lead to wars between the Indians and the English before. However, the peace largely remained for a couple of reasons. First, during his lifetime, Massasoit did much to ensure that the English were safe in their position. This was largely to his own benefit. The English had become valuable trading partners, and nobody was really that excited to go to war with them. This long peace also meant that, unlike in Virginia, the English colonists were far more likely to trade things such as weapons to the Indians. We note, for example, that on the eve of the war, the neighboring Narragansett had built their own forge and were quite adept at fixing English weapons. At the same time, the English worked well with the local tribes as trading partners. During the first half of the 17th century, the fur trade had become valuable. Fashion trends back in England had valued the beaver pelts that existed throughout North America in large numbers. The Indians would go and do the hard work before trading their pelts to the American colonists for export back to England. This system had worked well for decades. However, by the time we reached King Philip's War, demand for fur was collapsing in Europe, which as a result caused an overabundance of supply, thus depressing the overall value. This means that the Indians, who had become increasingly dependent on the fur trade, were now struggling. While Massasoit had done much to keep the other tribes off the backs of the English, the growing number of English was making this an increasingly difficult task moving through the 1660s. As discussed a moment ago, the population was surging. As the population grew, there was a predictable amount of encroachment of English onto Indian lands. This brings us to our first big issue, and one of the main causes of the conflict. English views of land ownership stand directly in contrast with the Indian view of land ownership. For the Indian tribes, there really wasn't something akin to land ownership. Sure, there was territory that was controlled by tribes, but owning the actual land, well, that just wasn't a thing. The English were quick to take advantage of this. The English never felt as though they were stealing land from the Indians because the tribes weren't improving upon the land. 
the English believed that land ownership meant actually using the land. This is something that even today remains a common belief. For my fellow lawyers out there, they are going to know what the concept of adverse possession is. Basically, in a lot of jurisdictions in the United States today, you can go onto land, improve it for a number of years, and if nobody ultimately makes a claim on it to get you off of their land, it will become yours. It is not quite that simple, however, it is pretty close. Now, there had been some debate about this in the colonies previously. If you'll recall from our episode on Roger Williams, Williams believed in fair pay for land. This is something that Williams did in fact practice, and at least to some extent it was practiced early on in the New England colonies. However, during the later part of the 1660s and moving into the 1670s, New England found itself rapidly growing. There was more demand than ever on land, and this began to push the colonists into conflict with the Indians. This conflict in turn caused the settlers to take a more aggressive stance to their own interests and protection, and you see a period of rapid expansion of the local militias. By 1675, we know that the Massachusetts Bay Company alone had 73 companies. Those companies were made up of approximately 120 men, which was broken into a mixture of cavalry and foot soldiers. Quick math therefore tells us that Massachusetts alone had a fighting force of approximately 8,700 men when King Philip's War broke out. The other colonies, specifically Plymouth and Connecticut, also had their own forces at the time independent of Massachusetts. These forces could all be pulled together through the New England Confederation, which we saw form in 1643. The Confederation included Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Haven, and Plymouth. Rhode Island was not invited to play because nobody wanted anything to do with them. Among the problems heading into the 1660s is that it wasn't just Massasoit who had died. The entire first generation was beginning to die off and at the very least was giving way to a younger generation. William Bradford had died back in 1657. Miles Standish died around 1656. John Winthrop had died back in 1649. The original class of settlers had grown old in North America and were now passing from the world. It was that second generation that was now beginning to inherit the colony, and with that, the relationship that had been in place from the beginning. Following the death of Massasoit, his holdings were passed on to his sons, Wamsutta and Metacom. Both men chose to request English names from Plymouth, Wamsutta receiving the name Alexander and Metacom receiving the name Philip. Alexander is not going to end up being much of a player here. He would end up dying from natural causes pretty quickly, which means that everything consolidated under Philip. With Philip now in power, he came into a world that was rapidly changing around him. Old alliances, while still important, often came into direct conflict with the pragmatic realities of the day. As the colonies spread out, they increasingly found themselves encroaching onto land that was controlled by the local tribes. For Philip, he found himself in a position where he needed to help ensure that his people survived, even as the English colonies rapidly expanded outward. This leads to a situation that would essentially begin a Cold War. The first fear ran through the colony in 1667. During that year, a rumor had started in Plymouth that Philip had allied his Wampanoag people with the nearby Narragansett. The rumor had been that Philip had entered into a secret alliance with the Dutch and the French 
to launch an attack against the English settlements. This fear was not without some basis either. The English had been longtime rivals with the French in the fur trade, so a French attempt to at least check the growing English influence over trade isn't something that is out of the question. Second, we discussed New York earlier this season. So we know that in 1664, the English had gone and seized the New Netherlands from the Dutch. It is not exactly out of the question that the Dutch, who were at the time involved in the Second Anglo-Dutch War with the English, might want to recapture their lost colony. Philip denied the accusations, and ultimately there was no great attack on Plymouth Colony at this point. Well, unclear if there ever had been discussions of some kind of an alliance with either the Dutch or the French remains a mystery. We know at a minimum that plans never got far enough to lead to any actual action. The English, for their part, did ultimately return to a peaceful relationship with Philip. However, this return to normalcy didn't exactly relieve the concern that the English had. There had been peace between the colonists and the Wampanoag for the past 40 years. Yet, despite this, there was an absolute growing sense of distrust between the groups as new tensions arose. For the next several years, what existed between the colonists and the Indian tribes was a tense coexistence. Well, peace remained throughout the rest of the 1660s and throughout the first half of the 1670s, there was always the underlying fear on both sides that they were living on the cusp of war. In Bacon's Rebellion, we were so easily able to identify the path to war. Bacon defies Berkeley, Berkeley denounces Bacon, men break into factions behind the two men, and they fight. Well, obviously more complicated than that, King Philip's War looks much more like a general unraveling than a clear march to war. As is so often the case during times of war, the outbreak of the conflict made longtime enemies into allies. In fact, a big part of the war was that uneasy relationship between those on each side of the conflict. On the side of Philip, it was far from clear that he was going to successfully raise people to his cause. Philip had enemies, and more than a few other rival tribes would have been happy to see him ousted. Well, there really wasn't anything resembling long-term infighting between the different colonies, it would be an error to imagine that there wasn't fierce competition between the groups. Plymouth, Connecticut, and Rhode Island all feared land grabs by the Massachusetts Bay Company. Likewise, there was always a sense from the small colonies that checking the power of Massachusetts was critical as they remained the Goliath in the region. Up in Rhode Island, they trusted nobody and nobody liked them. We have already spent extensive time on the fact that those who ended up in Rhode Island often found themselves there because they had views that clashed with the beliefs of those in the other New England colonies. When the United Colonies in New England were formed, Rhode Island was so much of an outlier that they simply weren't invited to join. The start of the avalanche begins in January of 1675. That January, a colonist by the name of John Sassamon came to the English colony with a warning. Sassaman was an Englishman who had come to live in a Christian Indian village, where he worked on converting the local tribes to Christianity. Sassaman was coming to Plymouth requesting a meeting with colonial governor Josiah Winslow. Upon meeting Winslow, Sassaman warned the governor that the Indians were planning an attack. Sassaman specifically pointed the finger at Philip, 
saying that he was working on gathering allies for a coming war. The problem was that by 1675, there had been years of scares and accusations. The relationship between the Indians and the English was unquestionably tense. However, the English had grown used to living in what amounted to a Cold War. Upon receiving this information, Winslow unceremoniously told Sussman that he was being dramatic and that there was nothing to worry about. Winslow then sent Sussman on his way. The next time that Plymouth would hear from Sussman is when his body was discovered nearly a month later. Despite a carefully organized scene that was designed to make the death look like an accident, basically everybody in Plymouth assumed that Sussman had been murdered. When looking for a suspect, it took all of two seconds to pick a guy out of the lineup. Sussman had been informing on Philip. If there was anybody who would want or need him dead, it was Philip. Of course, the Wampanoag people rejected this claim as being ludicrous, though this did little to dissuade the Plymouth colonists. In March of 1675, an eyewitness came forward and personally claimed that he had seen Sussman's killers, three of Philip's advisors. Now, let's unpack a couple of things here. The colony was angry because they believed an Englishman had been murdered at the hands of Philip. The colony was always going to have to respond. Winslow, however, likely wasn't itching to start a war. He was going to therefore have to balance his response and find a middle ground. And, spoiler alert guys, he is going to fail. This eyewitness provided Winslow with an opportunity that he likely viewed as the best path. It would spare the colonists from having to do something dangerous, like directly accusing Philip of any such thing and inviting an almost guaranteed war. Likewise, the accusation against his advisors would remove pressure from Winslow from within the colony to do something, while at the same time sending a message to Philip not to kill the English again because there would be consequences. This is, of course, making the assumption that the eyewitness was being honest in what he saw, and that this was not a totally contrived statement. Either way, however, Winslow had to act, and this was going to be his best path. The colony, therefore, moved ahead, and the three men were arrested. Now, don't worry about their names. Just know that they were charged, and they were to be brought to trial. The trial itself gives more evidence of the fact that Winslow was trying desperately to toast a middle ground. Instead of the standard jury of 12 Englishmen, Winslow instead had a jury of six Englishmen and six likely handpicked Indians. This again would hopefully avoid setting off the war that Winslow wanted to avoid. By having six Indians on the jury, he now had the ability to claim that the accused men received a fair trial and were judged by a jury of their peers. Unsurprisingly, the three men were found guilty of murder. They were sentenced to death on June 8, 1675, and that sentence was promptly carried out. For Winslow, it appeared to him that he had done what he could to find a way to keep this from boiling over into war. He didn't point the finger at Philip himself, who most of the colonists suspected. He instead brought up a mixed jury so that there could be no claims of an unfair trial. Philip, however, was not pleased by this outcome. Within days of the execution, reports began to roll in that Philip was planning for war against Plymouth. It is unclear whether or not the warning from Sassaman had been a legitimate thing or just more of the rumors that had been flying around for years. Likewise, it is not completely clear just why he ended up dead. 
It could have been for the sake of revenge. It could have been because of concerns that he knew more information and he needed to be silenced. Regardless of the reasons for his warning, however, that warning had become a self-fulfilling prophecy. On June 20th, 1675, just 12 days after the executions of the accused killers of John Sassaman, a group of Indians raided the village of Swansea. The inhabitants were sent fleeing as the town was raided and then burnt to the ground. It is actually not known if it had been Philip himself who had ordered this attack on Swansea. However, it was this attack that officially put everybody past the point of no return. Without a doubt, the Plymouth settlers knew that they were going to have to address the attack on Swansea. Within 48 hours of the attack, news had reached Winslow. Winslow wasted no time in beginning the process of raising an army to go protect Swansea from further incursion. Already, however, several stretchers had been burnt and most of the town's residents had fled for their lives. The initial force being sent in to protect Swansea was under the command of William Bradford. Now, for just a bit of clarity, I don't actually see anywhere in the record where William Bradford goes by the moniker of Junior. However, I will tell you that this is indeed William Bradford Jr., and that yes, he is the son of William Bradford, the same William Bradford that we had spent so much time with last season. This, of course, makes sense because I had pointed out earlier today that by this point, the elder Bradford had been dead for the last 18 years. It is also this battle that Benjamin Church is going to enter into our story. Benjamin Church was born in 1639 in Plymouth. Church had become wealthy, relatively speaking, through his work as a land speculator. He was also known for having a close relationship with the natives that he met and was by all rights popular amongst the different tribes. Benjamin Church would also form a real knack for ending up at important battles. This would prove critical for his legacy because years after the war, he wrote one of the most complete accounts of this war. His accounts of the war are still largely relied upon today. Therefore, much of the information we are going to be discussing about this war is provided to us through Church's own writings. Bradford would arrive quickly, reaching Swansea by June 24th. However, by that point, we know that any hope of a settlement was long gone. When Bradford arrived, several Indians lie dead. They had been shot and killed by the town's residents. The tribe that had been doing the harassing responded by killing nine of the English colonists. Over the next several days, small skirmishes continued to break out with the Indians, who would strike quickly on the edges of the English lines. The Swansea residents had fled to nearby Miles Garrison, where a guard and several residents were killed in an attack. With the death count mounting, it became very obvious to everybody that this wasn't going to be some minor event that would be put down with some kind of an agreement, but rather was the outbreak of a much more substantial conflict. The shock of the attack at Swansea was not something that just was contained to the colonists in Plymouth, but it quickly spread throughout all of New England. Everybody throughout New England had been on edge for years as the quasi-Cold War between the Wampanoag and Plymouth had broken out. Therefore, as soon as word about the Swansea attack hit, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was quick to join the fight and offer their assistance to Plymouth. The early days of the war were a hectic rush on both sides. In many ways, this was not really a war that anybody was expecting, and yet almost immediately after beginning, things quickly avalanched into a full-size conflict that would ultimately embroil all of New England. The immediate need, however, on both sides was to, as quickly as possible, get control over the situation and establish their battle lines. For 
Philip, that meant drawing as many other tribes to his side as possible to compete with the English numerical advantage. This was not necessarily as easy of a task as it sounds. Remember that there is not one Native American tribe that lives in New England. Rather, there are many, many different tribes who often don't get along well together. As we discussed extensively last season, even under Massasoit, the Wampanoag tribes were never something akin to the Powhatan Confederacy in Virginia. There was significant infighting between the tribes, and there were plenty of Indian tribes who would have been just as happy to see Philip and his tribes run over in battle. On the other hand, a lot of those same tribes that hated Philip also recognized that the situation in New England was quickly becoming unsustainable. The English were expanding quickly, and Indian tribes quickly found that their lands were being encroached on at an alarming rate. The English faced similar issues. First, for years, the English had been happily trading weapons with the Indians, something that was going to quickly become a serious concern for them for very obvious reasons. The English were always going to be better armed. However, dealing with an enemy with firearms is a very concerning thing for the English. The English, therefore, were going to be pressed to ensure that this conflict stayed as small as possible. Well, Philip was trying to convince tribes historically hostile towards him to come and fight a common English threat, the English were doing exactly the opposite. They wanted to keep the war small and contained. The goal, therefore, of the English was to get Indian tribes to join their cause and come fight for them. Doing this would both deny Philip additional manpower and firepower, while at the same time keeping as many of those guns as possible under English control. However, recognizing that getting Indian tribes to fight for them was going to be a hard sell, the English were, for the most part, okay accepting a promise of neutrality. Well, there is always concerns with neutrality that the parties might not be as neutral as you'd like, it is still better than having tribes become openly belligerent. The first troops from the Massachusetts colony were ready to join the action by the end of June of 1675. What would initially follow were a few minor attempts to inflict some damage on the local Poconocet tribe. On June 30th, an army under the command of Thomas Savage swept the peninsula looking not only for the Poconocet tribe, but their leader, Philip. What he found was distressing. And what is this distressing thing that he did find? Well, he found absolutely nothing. As it turns out, Philip and the Poconocet people had managed to get out some time before. Now, as just a quick note, if you are wondering what Philip is doing with the Poconocet people instead of the Wampanoag, please know that these two tribes were very, very close. Through the marriage of Philip's brother, the Poconocet tribe and the Wampanoag were amongst the closest allies with each other. So hopefully that will help clear up what Philip was doing with the Poconocet people. The disappearance of Philip and the Poconocet people presents a twofold problem. At the most basic level, it means that Philip is now gone. In a perfect world, Philip would be trapped on the peninsula, he would be quickly captured, and the entire war would be brought to a fast end. The second problem is that Philip's absence meant that he had not only escaped, but he had likely had a chance to get into neighboring groups and grow his forces. Philip is not going to evacuate into enemy territory, but rather is going to head somewhere that is already friendly towards him. And now it is time to introduce one of the main themes of King Philip's war, complete incompetence and mismanagement. Savage, for his part, knew exactly where Philip was. Time was short, but there was still a chance that he could have been intercepted and the war avoided. So, of course, he gave pursuit, right? Wrong. 
Thomas Savage, rather than giving chase, decided to hang back and work on fortifying the peninsula. Benjamin Church, upon learning of this, was absolutely incensed. However, the evidence suggests that even by this point, the English were still holding out hope that there would be some kind of settlement reached. This again shows a side of King Philip's war that contrasts so heavily with Bacon's rebellion. There just wasn't that desire in New England for a war like what we saw in Virginia prior to Bacon's rebellion. Therefore, what we do end up seeing is that even during these early days of the war, there is an ongoing effort by the English to stave off further conflict. These efforts are themselves often a problem early on. As discussed, beyond re-establishing a peace, the English wanted to do everything they could to limit the other tribes from joining the war effort. In these efforts, however, we often see the English making poor decisions. More often than not, the English were just making an overall mess of everything. No example of this is going to end up being greater than in their dealing with the Narragansett tribe. The Narragansett were one of the most powerful tribes in the region, and both the English and Philip sought to win them over. For their part, the Narragansett tribe seemed to be pretty resolved in the fact that they hated both Philip and the English. The job of winning the Narragansett over for the English fell to Edward Hutchinson, the son of the late Anne Hutchinson. The problem is that Hutchinson didn't come over and try to woo the Narragansett. Rather, he walked in, demanded that the Narragansett hand over hostages, and that if they refused, they would be considered an enemy. Not surprisingly, the Narragansett did not respond well to these overt threats. However, at least at this point, they are going to remain neutral. Despite what was seemingly the best efforts of the English to drive the Narragansett over to Philip's camp, they just aren't ready to go in that direction. At least not yet. This is what the first month of King Philip's War largely looked like. Both the English and Philip were running around trying to earn allies. The colonists were also going around trying to threaten groups into neutrality, which did little to actually earn them that end. At the same time, in July of 1675, it is important to note that it is not really marked by widespread warfare, but rather hit-and-run tactics by the Indians. While there isn't anything that resembles a large engagement, skirmishes would rule the day. That July, forces under Philip attacked in bird settlements at Middleborough, Taunton, Old Rehoboth, and Dartmouth. There was a single engagement on July 19th, when troops under Hutchinson happened to catch up with the rear of the Wampanoag. There was a brief engagement, a handful on both sides were killed. However, yet again the colonists make the baffling decision not to pursue the Wampanoag warriors. The English believed that they would rather be able to quickly block off all escape routes and essentially trap Philip. This poor attempt at siege work, however, would fall well short. Philip knew the land better than the colonists, and he was able to slip right out. It is worth noting, however, that as a result of the escape, Philip was required to leave behind the women and children, as crossing with them was simply too dangerous. Most of them were captured and would ultimately be sold into slavery. The story of those early days of King Philip's War can be seen as an escalating series of skirmishes. Well, there was a few minor engagements, most of the damage during that first month came from Indian hit-and-run tactics on English towns. The English spent most of their first month trying to convince and often threaten other tribes into either alliances or more generally neutrality. However, even within that first month, the English had already made decisions that would profoundly affect the long-term outcome of the war. As we are going to see next time, 
poor decision-making is going to come back to cost the English dearly. Next time, we are going to continue to look at how King Philip's war quickly grew. To this point, we have seen small skirmishes. Next time, we are going to begin looking at some of the biggest battles of the war. With that, I hope you are all staying healthy and staying safe. I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks, and I will see you back here next time as we will move through the major battles of King Philip's War. <laughs>